Live by Live has all of your favorite music, and you can listen for free. Whether you hit play on one of our hundreds of curated music stations or create your own custom artist radio station, you'll find the music you love on Live by Live. Visit LiveXLive.com or search LiveXLive in the App Store or Google Play and listen for free now. Democrats are being sore losers. They refuse to acknowledge they lost the election. So what do they do? They cry malfeasance, wrongdoing, criminality, fraud. Democrats, more so than Republicans, seem to have a problem conceding defeat. Either the election system broke down or some mystery votes are hiding somewhere. You know, a whole series of Democrats who've just said bluntly, if our candidate doesn't win, they stole the election. The Dems just want to make America suffer. It's like losing the World Series and demanding an extra inning the, a day later. The Democrats are refusing to accept the declared results of the national media. So how do they do this? Lo and behold, they find missing balance. The radical left is attacking the sanctity of our votes. Refusing to accept the midterm election results. So what if these were Republicans refusing to concede. Democrats may see how they'll be able in the future to steal elections through lawsuits you know, that they can't win with the voters. Ramping up election conspiracy theories, accusing Republicans of outright stealing the election. Kind of rich. You know what? Sounds sore loserish. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. On Saturday night, I slept exceedingly well for the first time in years. Gone were the persistent feelings of dread and worry that had followed me home from Otisville Prison. When Joe and Kamala took the stage and addressed the people as president and vice president-elect, the spell had been broken. The long national nightmare was finally over. Folks, America has always been shaped by inflection points, by moments in time we've made hard decisions about who we are and what we want to be. Lincoln, in 1860, coming to save the Union. FDR in 1932, promising a beleaguered country a new deal. JFK in 1960, pledging a new frontier. And 12 years ago, when Barack Obama made history, he told us, yes, we can. In those magic hours, after Joe Biden secured the necessary 270 electoral votes, I was finally, completely, 100% free. I was home, and for a brief moment, it felt fucking great. Donald Trump would finally be gone from my life. Strike that. He would be gone from all of our lives. But for me, obviously, it was a bit more personal. I went away so this man could be president. My crimes were his crimes. He took almost everything from me. And from the moment I went away, he remained this looming, omnipotent figure in all aspects of my life. At any moment, he could command his Justice Department to reach down and punish me at will. I wasn't just a prisoner, I was his prisoner. And as long as Donald Trump remained president, his shadow would continue to haunt my life. So the relief I felt was enormous upon hearing that Biden had finally won this election. Now this campaign is over, what 
is the will of the people. What is our mandate? I believe it's this. Americans have called upon us to marshal the forces of decency, the forces of fairness, to marshal the forces of science, and the forces of hope in the great battles of our time. The moment, though, could not have been more Trumpian in its juxtaposition of Biden-Harris hope and competency against what was happening at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Wedged into a Philadelphia strip mall next to an adult bookstore, the Trump campaign had inexplicably chosen this industrial wasteland with signs warning of toxic waste in the background as their location to formally challenge the election results. The Trump campaign held a press conference to challenge the election results at Four Seasons Total Landscaping in Northeast Philadelphia. Some people suspect the campaign intended to reserve the Four Seasons Hotel, but accidentally booked this landscaping company, located between a crematorium and a sex toy store. Besides the dystopian backdrop straight from an episode of the A-Team, there was a man in his underwear shouting about George Soros. All the time. Now, how much money does she make off a of refused back? How much money does she make? How much money do they take in, bro? Who pays for all that? And a convicted sex offender is a material witness for the Trump campaign. Political reported how the poll watcher Daryl Mikkel Brooks was convicted in the 1990s of a sexual assault, lewdness, and endangering the welfare of a minor. He was charged with exposing himself to two girls aged 7 and 11, although he was always maintained his innocence. Speaking at the press conference, Brooks cried foul on the election committee, saying, they did not allow us to see anything, he said. Was it corrupt or not? Even sweeter was when Giuliani heard that the networks had begun calling the election in favor of Biden. He asked, which ones? A reporter replied, all of them. All the, oh my goodness, all the networks. Wow. All the networks. We have to forget about the law. Judges don't count. All the networks, all the networks. All the networks thought Biden was going to win by 10%. Gee, what happened? Come on, don't be, don't be ridiculous. Networks don't get to decide elections. Courts do. It was what campaign insiders call a Rudy special, a moment of calamitous stupidity brought on by Rudy's own general incompetence. It was a bumbling clusterfuck of a clown show made worse by the fact that the president had mistaken the location for the Four Seasons Hotel itself. In staging the event, Trump's surrogates had reduced the presidency to a flaming peg of dog shit thrown on someone's porch. It was rotten and nasty and potentially dangerous. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. God have mercy on your soul. Over time, this moment will become an indelible part of the Trump presidency, marking the pitiful turn from farce back to reality that had defined Trump's time in office. Sure, we laughed, thinking it was the end, only it wasn't. Instead, the Republican leadership fell back in line with the president. Despite no proof to support allegations of widespread fraud or illegal voting in the United States, some of his top Republican allies 
backing the president's refusal to concede. At this point, we do not know who has prevailed in the election. Uh, the media uh, is desperately trying to get everyone to, to coronate Joe Biden as the next president. But that's not how it works. Okay. Trump has not lost. Do not concede, Mr. President. Fight hard. President Trump is 100% within his rights to look into allegations of irregularities and weigh his legal options. Acting shamefully true to form, Mitch McConnell did the political calculus and decided he still needed Donald Trump to maintain his leadership position. McConnell knows this is going nowhere. With him, you have to listen to what he doesn't say as much as what he does say. There was no mention of election fraud. Instead, he said irregularities. He's saying, we'll give you a few more minutes in front of the camera, and unless you have some real proof, then you've got to go. McConnell knows this moment is a rallying cry for base conservatives. And at stake in Georgia is the entire Republican majority in the Senate. McConnell's sole reason for being hangs in the balance. What does it say about America that heads of states from around the world have congratulated President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris and Republican leadership has still neglected to do so? Are you all afraid of President Trump? Well, what, what it says about America is that until the Electoral College votes, Anyone who's running for office can exhaust concerns about counting in any court of appropriate jurisdiction. It's not unusual. It should not be alarming. At some point here, we'll find out finally who was certified in each of these states, and the Electoral College will determine the winner and that person will be sworn in on January 20th. No reason for alarm. One crossword from Trump's Twitter and it's all fucking over. Everyone has a gun on everyone else. And for now, the suicide pack holds. Trump will burn down his own party before relinquishing power. Do you wanna play rough? Okay. No. Say hello to my little friend. Again, this should come as zero shock to anyone. He literally said he was going to do this very thing. Yet for all the drama, nothing has actually happened. Joe Biden remains the president-elect, and in 71 days, Trump will be gone, either on his own or in handcuffs. What happens now is mere posturing. That doesn't mean it won't be a steel cage match from the old schools of the worldwide wrestling. Still, between Biden and the larger institution of the presidency stands Emily Murphy from the General Services Administration. By law, Murphy, who is the head of the massive agency that keeps the federal government functioning, must formally recognize Mr. Biden as the incoming president for his transition to begin. 
It has been four days since the race was won by Biden, and she still has not moved. A new president-elect Joe Biden continues the work of preparing to take office on January 20th. But those transition efforts are being blocked by a government official who is refusing to acknowledge the election results. CBS4's Natalie Brand has the latest from Delaware. As the barrier to necessary federal funds and access to key institutions, the physical transfer of power cannot happen. It is at this level that the actual gears of government work, and for now, in the midst of a pandemic crisis, Joe Biden is still locked out. The Associated Press said that Joe Biden is president. Ha! <laughs> Inside the Trump White House, it's every man for himself, as everyone except the most hardcore lunatics know that the president can't win. Reports are coming out of the West Wing about Jared and Melania trying to talk Trump into conceding as a way to position themselves as the rational ones to their New York City society friends. Paulie, get dressed, you're playing golf today. No, I'm not, Grandpa, I'm playing tennis. You're playing golf and you're going to like it. Hey, You'll get nothing and like it. On the other end of the spectrum are Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon, who seem to be commanding Trump's ear and encouraging and fueling his mania. Both of them face serious criminal jeopardy. Bannon is already indicted for embezzling millions of dollars, and Rudy's indictments are likely weeks away from being unsealed. Word is that both men are seeking pardons from the president and are taking an aggressive stance towards the election to curry favor. Now, as my buddy Steve Bannon says, if you're going to lie, be believable about it. Because you do not have 138,000 votes come in and 135,000 of them come in for Biden. Ultimately, it will require the intervention of someone close to Trump, most likely Ivanka or Mark Meadows to reason with the president. Trumpland will soon lose patience as well. This is an unwinnable fight that threatens to bankrupt the GOP and tarnish its legacy for a generation. At least in 1974, when Nixon was refusing to step down, it was the Republicans who came to him in his final hours and said, you've got to go. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Our Constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not of men. Here, the people rule. But this ain't the 70s. Today's Republican leadership is cowed and frightened at Trump's base. Step out of line and you face being primaried out of office. What we're witnessing is Olympian-level narcissism, fueling a defiance stand that is headed absolutely nowhere. How much longer will this go on? I can't tell you. An army of psychiatrists cannot diagnose the insanity that is on display. Despite Trump's defiance, he remains a paper tiger. His threats are toothless in their ability to do anything other than embarrass the country and do lasting damage to the Republican Party brand. Still, the president's iron hand on the Republican Party and his sway over millions and millions of voters means that no one is willing to tell this man that he lost the fucking election. So this embarrassing moment in history will continue. I won't yet call it a crisis because nothing has happened. We are seeing a war of words and the positioning of a false narrative for some undetermined future conclusion. So, in other words, you're saying that will the president concede anytime soon, I guess, is my, my final question. 
given all of this? It really would be wrong for him. At this point, it would be wrong for him to concede. There's, there is strong evidence that this was a, an election that in at least three or four states and possibly 10, they, they, it was stolen. In other words, it, it was based on false votes. Now, you can't, you can't and, a, a, let an election go into history without challenging that. I mean, uh, right. Moore got so two months to challenge take, it. Rudy? How long do you expect all of this? How long do you expect The pathetic Bill Barr, who has remained conspicuously absent as Trump cries wolf, has suddenly reemerged by giving prosecutors the authority to investigate voter fraud claims. Predictably, it sent alarm bells ringing as it has been Barr, time and time again, who has rescued Donald Trump from the worst of his predicaments. I can't listen to that man's nasal whine. I don't know what compromise Trump holds over his head, but this man has been the bane of my existence. How can so much evil reside in that chubby little package? On Tuesday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, another of Trumpland's core sycophants, put on a shameful display in front of the cameras to prove his own loyalty to the leader, predicting a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. We now consecrate the bond of obedience. Assume the position. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Thank you, sir. May I have another? Thank you, sir. May I have another? This came after a seething Pompeo fought with reporters about whether or not American initiatives abroad to prevent voter intimidation and guarantee free and fair elections was diminished by Trump's refusal to concede the election. This department frequently sends out statements encouraging free and fair elections abroad. Yes. And for the losers of those elections to accept the results, doesn't President Trump's refusal to concede discredit those efforts? That's ridiculous. And you know it's ridiculous and you asked it because it's ridiculous. Uh, look, the truth, the, you, you, you asked the question, Esmer, you asked the question, if you, if you will permit me to answer it. Um, you asked a question that is ridiculous. This department cares deeply. Meanwhile, Uncle Joe Biden has treated the moment with careful disdain, acknowledging his frustration while refusing to be dragged into the mud to fight Trump. Sir, what do you say to the Americans that are anxious over the fact that President Trump has yet to concede and what that might mean for the country? Well, um, I just think it's an embarrassment, um, quite frankly. Uh, the only thing that, uh, how can I say this uh, tactfully? I, I think it will not help the president's legacy. Those who know Donald Trump best recognize his current behavior as a part of a familiar playbook he has deployed most of his adult life. What we are seeing is a man unaccustomed to losing. It is the word loser that is at the heart of the moment. Loser. Donald Trump is insisting on victory, not because he thinks he actually won, but because he simply cannot lose. He has proven time and time again throughout his life to be able to declare victory in the most ruinous of defeats. If not victory, then the shifting of blame for why he lost. He will not tolerate losing to what he believes to be an inferior candidate in Joe Biden. He will not rest until the counter-narrative is that he would have won or he did win if they had only counted just the legal ballots. He is being denied his rightful second term and will forever contest the legitimacy of this corrupt process. 
what Trump tells himself must be the accepted truth. I was on my lunch break and I saw the other poll workers in the parking lot with two boxes. One was labeled Democrat ballots and the other was labeled trash. And I thought to myself, that's pretty odd. And they were only tearing up the ones labeled trash. And they weren't just tearing them up, they were blowing their noses with them, wiping their gooches and taints with them. They were making paper mache masks and scaring newborns and the elderly. At one point, one of the poll workers pulled out a bald eagle and started choking it by shoving ballots down its throat. And the whole scene culminated with them burning ballots in what I can only assume is a satanic ritual. There was black smoke, and they were chanting, Hail the Dark Lord Joe Biden! Hail the Dark Lord Joe Biden! To better understand Donald Trump's twisted mind, I reached out to the author of Trumpland, The Art of Being the Donald, and Bloomberg Opinion senior columnist Tim O'Brien. If there is a Trump enemies list of people he's coming after, I sit at the very top, but O'Brien is next in line. Upon publication of his book in 2005, he was sued by Donald Trump for five fucking billion dollars. O'Brien's book touched a nerve in Trump above and beyond what others had written. Perhaps it was because O'Brien reported Trump's real net worth at the time being just 250 million instead of 10 billion. Or it might have been the details of his cuckolding Mike Tyson and claims of sleeping with the former champ's wife, Robin Givens. In the end, it was a book that made him look like a joke, a pathetic loser at the end of a con. In the end, Trump's suit was dropped in 2009, and O'Brien succeeded in driving him insane. Trump's deposition from the case is a disjointed jumble of answers and nonsense that has since become famous. In the years that have followed since Trump became president in 2016, O'Brien returned to writing about his least favorite subject and has skewered the president mercilessly for the past four years. In his most recent column for Bloomberg, he describes a man who will do anything to avoid being tagged a loser, even burn down his own country. So let's listen now to that conversation. Hey, Tim, thanks so much for joining us today on Mea Culpa. And I want to just jump straight into this. You retweeted something that most of us feel right now from the actor and comedian Kumail Nagiani that read, we must heal, but first we must gloat. I really think that this sums up perfectly how many people feel about having Trump and the entire um, group of MAGA shoved in their face for four years. But it also highlights the incredible disconnect between the two groups, each side, of course, finding that the other is completely contemptible and loathsome. And I don't see that there ever being any common ground because I refuse to accept any of the tenets of Trumpism. How do we ever bridge this divide? Well, that's the core question we're, we're dealing with right now, Michael. I, you know, I think any transition prior to this one, certainly the, the winning side felt good about winning because both sides have, have had historically serious policy differences. But Trump has added such a, a, a huge amount of acid um, and division to the national conversation that it's caused people a rare amount of emotional, I think, distress. And I think that you saw that release on Saturday when it was called for Biden. And in, in, in observations like the tweet you just made, 
<clears throat> I would like to believe that we'll get there merely on conversation, but I think the divisions we have are so deep and profound. You know, I, it's easy to blame everything we've we've arrived at on Trump personally, but I think the reality is he embodies a lot of longstanding divisions around race and racism and income inequality that have been accelerating for decades and decades. And so we've got a lot of work to do. And I think the first way you deal with that is through good policy, problem solving, jobs to people who need jobs, healthcare to people who need healthcare. Those are issues that bind people across the political aisle. We just have to find a way to deliver those solutions and talk about them in a constructive way, I think. Yeah, you know, last night I was actually on Alex Witt uh, at, uh, on MSNBC. And one of the things that I turned around and I said, is that Trumpism is really nothing more than the Trump organization cult, the cult of Donald Trump. That the people cult of personality. have no interest. Yes, that people have no interest in stepping away from. And I find it so in incredible that Trump could have actually added 5 million more votes than what he obtained in 2016 to win the election. But it's only it's only going it's only amazing if you don't realize how desperate people are. Like we all know people in our lives in everyone's journey people can glom onto things that feel like a solution if they're desperate. It happens. But what solution but Tim, what solution has Donald Trump caused? Over the course of the last four years, the answer, it's rhetorical, of course, is zero. Well, Signing for his affluent, an executive order. What's that? Well, for his affluent supporters, real solutions. He, he A massive tax cut and a conservative court. And that's why those folks willing to hold their nose and look the other way. For his working class base, he completely played them for fools. He said he was going to give them jobs he didn't deliver. He said he was going to give them a new health care plan he never got. Uh, he said he was going to improve trade deals that kept hosing the working class Americans. He didn't do that, but they think he did. And that's the challenge. I mean, he also he ran it really he ran on first. Of course, it was all about immigration and building the wall and the other same same thing with China. Right. Right. Who's going to build who's going to pay for the wall? And he would have his audience Right. Which is really what they are. Uh, not a rally. They're an audience for his shit show. And, you know, Mexico. Well, clearly Mexico didn't pay for it. Not only did Mexico not pay for it, there is no additional wall. There is one what around the White House, however. <laughs> yeah, it's excellent. You know, but in a recent column for Bloomberg, you write that Trump knows his lawsuits claiming voter fraud are hollow. But that's not the point. He just doesn't want to be labeled a loser. And he wants to claim for years and years that he only lost because it's a rigged election. So, of course, he's reverting back to his old playbook, something you and I know very well. What does this mean in practical terms for what he's going to do next? Well, and again, you, you do know this as well as, as anybody, including me, Michael. Um, Donald Trump is a kid who, if he doesn't get his candy, will want to burn the candy store down. Um, he is that self-absorbed and damaged, and he's never been in this for public policy. He's not been in this for public service. He's been in it for self-aggrandizement. And, uh, you know, inevitably, he will have a tombstone that says on it, I won. 
that that is that is so fundamental to his sense of himself that he'll come up with any excuse to avoid responsibility or blame when when he's the author of his own failures, including losing this presidential election. These lawsuits are are just crutches he's building that he can lean on forever to impugn the integrity of the election. When all of us knows it was a clean election, there could have been fraud around the tiniest of margins as there can be in any process. But uh, the United States has been running clean, fraudulent free mail-in balloting in, in red states, by the way, for a long time. So all of this is, is Trump being a paper tiger. I think the court stuff will get slapped down and then he'll have to move on to stage two, which are executive orders, uh, pardons, anything he can do, maybe foreign policy moves, anything he can do unilaterally unfettered by the Congress between now and January 20th. And I think we could be in for a rough ride. Well, yeah, I mean, you are very familiar with Donald Trump and lawsuits. They're, they're basically empty. They're empty threats. And he does it in order to obtain a headline. That's all he cares about right now is obtaining a headline. Donald Trump fighting. Something with the word fighting. Donald Trump will not concede. These are the things that bolster his very fragile ego, and yet there's no substance behind it. I talked about this yesterday again on MSNBC, where I expressed that Donald Trump does not have the right to file an action in the Supreme Court. That's not the way that it works. How is this, in fact, similar to the lawsuit? Well, so he fully expects, actually, because he named um, uh, or was involved in naming three su Supreme Court justices now, that they are supposed to do his bidding. He found out that was wrong when they ruled that his, ta his tax returns weren't out of bounds for local prosecutors to pursue. Um, uh, but he has always, you know, he's viewed the legal system as something he could weaponize against critics, business competitors, other politicians. He learned that from Roy Cohn, and he's been doing it for decades. Um, you know, in my case, um, if your audience doesn't know, I was at the New York Times at the time. I wrote a biography of Trump, Trump Nation. Um, it, he felt it lowballed his net worth and misrepresented his track record as a businessman. He sued me for libel. He lost. He went on <clears throat> after the, the case. He, he sued me in 2006. It was ultimately dismissed in 2011. But he said in the press in the years since, you know, I caused Tim O'Brien all sorts of trouble. I caused him a lot of grief and I cost him a lot of money. Neither of those things are true. Uh, I was um, indemnified by my book publisher. They paid my legal fees. The legal support I got from the New York Times came from their free to me because I was an employee. I was fortunate to have that kind of institutional support. A lot of writers don't, but I did. Um, he has spent a lot more on the lawsuit than our side did. And it actually didn't cause me any pain. You know, my, my wife is a lawyer and she hates it when I say this, but I actually enjoyed litigating with Trump. We got to depose him for two days uh, in December of 2007, uh, under oath about all sorts of components of his life and his business and his public statements. And under oath, uh, he, he was caught out lying 30 times because we were able in discovery to get his business records, his tax returns, and just push them across the table to him when we asked him questions. And that deposition ended up becoming one of the sort of Rosetta Stones of 
Trump's candidacy and now his his career. It's it's not a deposition any rational leader, businessman, or politician would want out in public. But he allowed that to happen by suing me. So you know, I've read I've read the deposition, and obviously, as a lawyer who had been practicing since the early 1990s, I've done thousands of depositions, and I've done depositions with people who are uneducated and people who are highly educated from Ivy League schools, like Trump says he is. I have to be very honest with you, and I'm recommending this to all the listeners out there. You must read this deposition. You would think that this is the deposition of a five-year-old. I've never read it is. more disjointed. <laughs> it is. It, 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 there's nothing logical about it. The three minutes later after a question, he backtracks and then he reverses course and goes to something which is completely irrelevant to the question and then back to the question, which contradicts his earlier statement. It is the most frustrating deposition that I ever read. And I'm shocked that more people don't know about it because it really goes to the level of his intelligence and his capabilities. In the wake of the deposition, he wanted to settle the case and we wouldn't settle with him because he recognized how damaging it was. And one of the famous things that's been pulled out of the deposition is when we, he was asked about how he calculates his net worth. And he essentially said, it's based on <laughs> I know whatever exactly, I feel I know it exactly is. exactly what he said, whatever I feel at the whatever time. Whatever I feel it is. But there was another statement in it that's gotten less attention that I've always thought was very interesting. We were going over with him how he valued his golf courses. And he had no um, P&Ls for the golf courses, no profit and loss statements. Um, we asked him how he estimated cash flow, et cetera, et cetera. And he had no records. And we said, well, then how do you know how profitable your golf courses are? And he said, mental projections. That was his answer. Yeah, I use I mental projections. Too. And I think that that's Donald Trump lives making mental projections when he gets up in the morning, when he goes to bed at night. And they're all about building this myth around him as someone he's not. Well, I have an upcoming lawsuit um, for legal fees that the Trump organization is supposed to indemnify me on. And I have an Eric Trump, a Don Trump Jr., and an Alan Weisselberg deposition scheduled for sometime this month. Rest assured, Don Jr. is no genius. Eric is less than a genius, less than Don Jr. So I can just, I, I'm looking forward to these depositions. And Alan Weisselberg, as you know, is a potential Pandora's box. That's for sure. So in a Friday Guardian piece, Karl Rove is quoted as saying, Stealing hundreds of thousands of votes would require a conspiracy on the scale of a James Bond movie. That isn't going to happen. Let's repeat that. That isn't going to happen. What does this say to you about the schism that exists in the Republican Party when its most emblematic spokesman, the architect of the previous GOP revolution and George W. Bush, dismisses Trump's claim out of hand? It means that, that they recognize that regardless of the parties or the policies that divide us, we all rely on, on a number of processes to make sure we have a, an honorable, civil, civic, and well-functioning society. And one of those things is our honest elections. And they recognize that Trump is trying to pollute the process so he can create an excuse. When Bush and Gore ended up in battle in Florida in 2000, I think there was a little over 500 votes that separated the two of them. Trump is behind by 20,000 or more 
in uh, Arizona, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. The last I looked, I think it was around 9,000 or so in Georgia. It's certainly nowhere close to 500. And I don't think any court is, and, and their evidence is horrendously ridiculous. One, it's hearsay. It's one poll worker saying he or she saw something. Uh, when Ronna McDaniels was asked uh, in Philadelphia, or I guess she was in Philadelphia, I think she might've been in Georgia actually, what evidence she had of voter fraud there. She said, well, we have it. I just can't share that with you yet. When Rick Grinnell was asked by a reporter in Las Vegas, where's your evidence of fraud? He just went mum and, and tried to flee. They don't have the evidence. They're just trying to pollute voters' minds and incent Trump's base, I think, to take to the streets. Yeah, I mean, look, Trump lies and they swear to it. And that's the way that it worked when I was at the Trump Organization. Whatever Trump said became the gospel. Even if you knew it was fucking bullshit, it didn't make it didn't make a difference. If you didn't follow the Trump dicta, you may as well pack your shit and leave. And for some reason, none of us really wanted to leave. And I hate myself right now for not leaving because I knew that what I was doing was bullshit. Do you know how many times that I used your lawsuit in order to stop people from writing things or doing things? I said, it's okay. Listen, Trump lost the Tim O'Brien case. That is true. And I would use the line that I heard Trump say hundreds of times, it cost him a fortune. And I have an unlimited expense account as it relates to litigation. Do you? Because I could drag this on for 100 years. And even if we lose, it doesn't matter. You'll be broke. And did you find that to be effective most of the time, Michael? Yes, very effective. Very effective. Because most people, especially if you're in business, the last thing you want to do with your profit is give it to a lawyer. Well, especially now you know, with media organizations under financial pressure, they just don't have the resources they once had to stand up to suits. I mean, there's a law now, New York State's considering a slap law, which is a, a regulation that prevents frivolous lawsuits like a lot of the ones that Trump indulges in from being filed simply to prevent a misuse of the system and court costs. Yeah, California has that. Yeah. You know, one of the unique things about you, Michael, is you, you have been on both sides of Trump in a way, you know, no one else really has other than a few people in the administration have that who have left. But um you know, you, you were asking earlier about why his followers put up with his lies and continue to follow him, even though he hasn't delivered on promises. He let you down a number of times during your time there around financial promises he made to you that he didn't keep. Uh, he put you in harm's way um, and you stood tall for him. And how do you understand that about yourself? And does that offer you any ways for understanding his voters? Yeah, it gives me a unique perspective into it. Donald Trump is a cult leader. And for me, it was never about the economics. I, I was semi-retired at 39. I had made a lot of money early. Luckily, I had made a lot of money. And I didn't need Donald Trump's paycheck in order to live my life. If I actually had to live my life from Donald Trump's paycheck, I couldn't have lived it. So the only way I was able to go to work for him was because I had, I had income coming in from other investments, real estate, taxi medallions, et cetera, um, that I didn't need his paycheck. What it was is the celebrity power and the power of the Trump brand that, that brought to me that was so intoxicating. And I allowed that need 
for some reason, there was something in my life that I was needing. Um, you wanted to be larger than yourself. And, and I don't mean that in an egotistical way. I mean, I think voters, his, his base wants to live a better life. He wanted to live a larger life. And he inspires that in people. Tim, I spend hundreds of hours a week trying to figure out where my moral compass went wrong, why it went wrong, because I think that would give a great insight into why the 70 million people that voted for him, I'd be able to reach some of them. Um, so far, I haven't come up with the exact answer. I'm in the area of why, you know, some of it, of course, had to do with wanting to be bigger and better than yourself, right? Um, I just had also come off of being very, very sick, um, you know, right before that, potentially I had 50-50 chance of living. I didn't so know that. There was an excitement and I'm a deal junkie. Yeah, I had blown a series of pulmonary embolists um, and, you know, I wasn't supposed to make it. So, you know, a lot of things happened to you or a lot of things going on personally in my own life that I guess I needed. I, I don't know. And I rack my brains every day trying to figure out what the hell is about this orange crusted scumbag that I followed, lost my moral compass, damaged my family's happiness, financially wrecked myself, all for what? For who? For an asshole. Well, and right? celebrity is intoxicating. To be around it for people, it can be very intoxicating. Yep, and don't forget at the time, he really was at the height between apprentice and buildings yeah. and deals. But yeah. on November 6th, Ivanka tweeted, every legal cast vote should be counted. Every illegally cast vote should not. Now, this should not be controversial, right? This is not a partisan statement. Free and fair elections are the foundation of our democracy. Well, Ivanka, I agree with you, right? And I love the sanctimonious whining of the Trump children. I mean, I've never met more sanctimonious bullshit coming out of anyone other than Trump's kids. But discuss with me the level of delusion they must walk around with on a daily basis, believing that their father is in the right and everyone else out there is out to get him and in the wrong. Well, this is a version of what you're trying to sort out for yourself about why you stayed with him for so long and, and let your moral compass spin in the wrong direction. Why his base stays allied with him, with him even though he hasn't delivered coal jobs or, or, or a wave of new manufacturing jobs. The Trump children are so deeply beholden to him in, in a way, uh, I think a lot of children, as they should be, are develop a, a, an unusual closeness to their parents because of the emotional proximity. But with the Trump children, I've always felt it's almost like they're captives. You know, Don didn't speak to his father at one point, Don Jr., for two years and was a ski bum out in Colorado and really disdained his father. He comes back into the fold. I think Eric is a much more pliant kid than Don Jr. I think he inevitably was going to go work for the company. And Ivanka, as we all know, has this abnormal orbit around her father. And, and you know, when she tweeted that about, you know, we have to honor elections and every vote should be counted. Of course, we all believe that. But to have these kids who are self-absorbed grifters, who don't read books and don't care about history or public service, suddenly discovering civics lessons that they want to share with the rest of America is, is just completely freaking pathetic and ridiculous. And I think they're going to start to wind up soon in the downward spiral of some of that. I think particularly Eric, 
and Ivanka. I think Don Jr. is teeing himself up for life in politics. I think he may end up being the flag bearer of Trumpism, but they're going to be, they're going to, no one's going to care about what they think as much anymore um, unless they revivify themselves in public life. And the only person who may, I think, have a real shot at that is Don Jr. Yeah, I, I agree with you, though. I think he's going to fall flat on his face. Um, Don is unfortunately a very um, troubled, you know, young man. He has been, all the children are emotionally bankrupt because the father who abandoned them technically as children and left them to Ivana to raise, they were always sort of the, you know, whatever, whatever whenever I have time and whatever the time was that Trump had for the children was always predicated around the business. And Don used to complain to me about it all the time. I'm never going to be like my father. I always wanted to go to the park and throw around the ball or, or, you know, something. Instead, we used to go to project sites and he would make me pick up nails that weren't, you know, damaged. or bent Which was how Donald was raised by Fred. Fred brought Donald to construction sites to pick up nails. Right, or to go and pick up um, rents from, you know, their Michelamas and so on. He was ne- but Don turned out to be exactly like his father. And yes, um, they didn't speak for years and was either, you know, he'd come to work for the company or he's out permanently. But yet it's interesting because all of them fight with each other. The three kids fight with each other in order to get the attention of their father. And they don't really authentically trust each other the way close, loving siblings do. They don't trust each other. No, and what they end up doing is they they step over one another in very deceitful ways in order to obtain their father's approval, which is, to me, it's very sick. So the one who says the fucking stupidest thing the one who says the most atrocious thing that makes the greatest headline gets the pat on the back from their father. But I do want to go into saying, you recently quoted as saying, Lincoln was suited to his time. Washington was suited to his time. And Donald Trump, who doesn't deserve to be in the same sentence with these people, was suited to this time. And that's what we have to understand. He is a reflection of us. Discuss with my listeners what you mean by that. Because I found it to be fascinating. Uh, I, I think this gets back, Michael, to a little bit of what we talked about in the beginning. That if if we just see what we've been through with Donald Trump as as uh, set in motion by Trump alone, and that Trump himself is responsible for it, we won't really understand what the problem was or how to fix it. And it also, I think, is helpful to everyone who felt that his arrival on the national stage was so strange and jarring. Um, because he's such a damaged and abnormal man, that's understandable. But I think the other question was, well, how does a society like ours elect a man like this to its highest office? And I think the answer in that lies in the fact that he stepped in to this historical vacuum. I think uh, the 2008 financial crisis caused a lot of fissures in our society that big institutions, including we in the media, didn't fully address or analyze in the right way. Wall Street got bailed out. The banks got bailed out. Average homeowners in middle America didn't. They lost pensions and savings and their college savings for their kids and their mortgages and their homes. Um, and no one came to their rescue. And I think both uh, Donald and Bernie, Trump and Bernie, filled that void and said, here are some answers for you in that. I think Bernie came into it with much less malice 
obviously, than Trump, but they were they were actually addressing some of the same grievances. And, and we have to recognize that because those grievances were real and the solutions have to be real. We've had, you know, racism is, is, is this, in the United States in particular, and specifically towards blacks, has such deep historical roots in slavery and oppression that Donald Trump didn't invent that. He just exploited those sentiments. Income inequality has been escalating since the 1980s. One of the great strengths, in my opinion, um, is of the United States is that we've always had a big middle class. And, and six, 70, you know, 70% of GDP is consumer spending. If you don't have a big middle class that can spend and liberate themselves financially, you don't have a strong economy. And the middle class has been getting slammed for decades. And Trump came in and recognized that and lied about the solution. But he was at least trying to say, here's the solution. So he exploited people's, I think, uh, economic fear and, and their longstanding racial hostilities and said, I will, I will embrace racism. I will speak for that for you. I don't care. And I will be your guardian economically and politically, which was total bullshit, but he got away with it until now. Well said. You know, in a recent tweet, Megyn Kelly responded to Ian Bremmer's call for people who voted for Biden to each and every one of them reach out to a Trump voter with the following reply. And this is what she said. Ian, you're out of touch if you think 70 million Americans who have been unfairly demonized as the worst of humanity for four years are now going to hug those who viciously attack them and are now making lists of their names. I'm talking reality, which is my job, not pie in the sky stuff. Discuss with me what you think Megyn Kelly was saying here. Because to me, Megyn Kelly is one of the most two-faced people that you could ever meet in your life. As a Fox representative, this is a Fox representative statement. When they threw her out and she went elsewhere, right? Then everything changed. I mean, even half the stuff in her book, most anything about me in her book is an absolute lie. She did that, of course, to build up momentum and to try to sell books. But explain to me what you think that she's saying here, because I can't figure her out. Well, I think, you know, at her core, Megyn Kelly is, is, a, is a fox zoo baby. She, she was raised in the fox zoo, and those folks have trouble living out in the wild in a world in which they have to deal with objective reality and constructive conversations and aren't slinging propaganda on, on behalf of their owners or more recently the president of the United States. Um, I think the news side, and I would separate the Chris Wallace's of the world from that observation. I'm really talking about the folks who do commentary, obviously Sean Hannity, um, Laura Ingram, and Megyn Kelly was part of that. And I think what she's doing now is they're trying to uh, establish the narrative for why they will block anything constructive that Joe Biden tries to do. Uh, no one demonized all of the Trump voters for the last four years. Donald Trump was demonized because he did the satanic thing. Donald Trump was demonized because he put self-aggrandizement and self-preservation ahead of everything else. You can understand almost everything Donald Trump does through those two lenses either self-aggrandizement or self-preservation. This vote was a referendum, um, first and foremost, on Trump's presidency, and he lost. 
down ballot, the Republicans did much better than people expected them to. And I don't think anyone's been saying we want to dismiss 70 million Americans as evil, despicable people not worthy of having a conversation with. But Megyn Kelly and her cohorts at Fox find that a useful argument to make because what they can say is this was all about you. It wasn't about Trump. This is about all those elite liberals who just care about themselves trying to say that you're despicable and that you're not worthy of attention. When in fact, I think the only way we'll move forward is by listening um, to those folks around their real needs. I don't think we should coddle racism or division from anybody, but I do think we have an obligation as a country to look out for each other economically. And that's, I think, one of the core things that animates the Trump voters. Uh, I respect the problems they're struggling with and want to help solve those. So Megyn Kelly's a propagandist. Megyn Kelly it has become, uh, was kicked into oblivion after she left NBC. And she now needs to be brought back. I think she wants to be brought back into the fold because the only life for her, for someone like her, is back with the other zoo babies at Fox. And so she's helping paint the walls the right color for them so she can get another job. Yeah, when I read it, it, to me, it looked like a resume builder. Let me ask you, Tim, what lies ahead for Trumpism as a political doctrine and ideology? And how does the GOP remake itself now in the absence of its most potent leader in a generation? Because as we all know, Trump still has a stranglehold on the party, which is what's making the party act continuously to this moment on like a bunch of whining babies, like a bunch, just a bunch of political assholes, which is how Trump ended up becoming president with his command of the base. And how do we separate Trump from Trumpism? And last question is part of that is, do you really think Don Jr. is going to carry the mantle forward? And if not Jr., then who else? My definition of Trumpism is a, a cult of personality that denies facts and objective reality in order to sow division to the benefit of one person. Uh, it's not about classic conservative principles like fiscal austerity or a strong hawkish foreign policy. You can disagree with those policies, but those were core tenets of conservatism. Trump is, is too ignorant, dumb, and impatient to actually have a strategic vision or to even focus on policy and getting policies enacted. Uh, it is all about him. And so Trumpism is about engineering the levers of power at the federal level and around the world around self-aggrandizement. I think that we can get past. That is so tied to the way that he rolls that we can get past that. But the extent to which it is grounded in the fabric of American society and these other things we've spoken about, racism isn't going away. Income inequality isn't going away. So I think we have real policy battles ahead of us. And into that whirlwind of policy battles, Trump will still be a voice. I, I suspect he and Jared are going to try to take over a media company, maybe make a run at a company like Sinclair Broadcasting. They're deeply aggrieved at Fox. It's pathetic that the reason they're aggrieved at Fox is because Fox called Arizona when that had actually no impact on the election. It was still going to be vote counting. But yet again, they needed a, a, an excuse to blame somebody. But I think Trump will want revenge on Fox and he will want to maintain a strong media presence because that's his core strength. He can go after his political enemies. He can be a political power broker through the media. So I would expect to see him do that. He won't leave Twitter, though his Twitter feed won't have the same kind of impact it had in the past because he won't have the same kind of power as he did. 
but his Twitter feed will still have traction. Um, and he can't go away because he's a media addict. He is so deeply insecure about his intellect, his physical appeal, uh, his wealth, and a number of other things that he needs that spotlight. You know, you talk about him looking at Sinclair and others. Uh-uh. I, I have to disagree on that. And this was being on the inside. One of the things that Jared used to bring up to Trump, and then Trump, of course, deciding that it's his own idea, is that, of course, media ownership equals power. Look at Rupert Murdoch. Jared used to say, look at me with the observer, right? Which was a two-bit piece of shit paper that he ended up having to give and sell off to David Pecker and he busted David Pecker out for like 30 to 50 grand on it also and memberships that he took the money. I mean, Jared is identical to Trump, which of course is probably why Ivanka married him, but he's not going to look to team up with Sinclair. He wants to start his own media empire, believing that, and we were going to call it TTV, Trump TV, remembering that Donald Trump never expected to win the election. He never, he never expected that he was going to become the nominee. So you don't think he'll try to buy any existing companies? No, uh -huh. no. He's going to build it because it's cheap and, it, and he doesn't have the money to buy a Sinclair. But this was always supposed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of politics. He was going to use running for the office in order to increase the, the brand and its value. So my, my belief is that they will start a media company believing that his 100 million social media followers is bigger than any media company that's out there. I mean, technically, he feels he could reach more people than watch the Super Bowl. You know, Tim, in another Bloomberg piece, you wrote, in the end, voters, enough voters at least, learned from all of this and denied Trump four more years in office. Yet the country is unlikely to fully move past Trump without taking responsibility for tolerating the forces that created him and without fixing the fundamental problems his presidency laid bare and amplified. Describe for me what you think those forces are that created Trump, and how do we actually move past this moment? You know, I think we've gotten far too comfortable with inequality and thinking that none of us have a responsibility for, for curing that. And even if people don't have a moral stake in that, and I understand that people wouldn't, we have a lot of hardworking folks in this country um, that understandably sometimes think, why should I give a bigger part of my paycheck up to other people who don't work as hard as I do? And, and I understand where that comes from. But the reality is we all sink or swim together. The United States is a special economic beacon in the world without competitors and able to solve all problems for economic growth is losing traction and China is the biggest warning signal on that front. We have a, 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 a powerful, economically robust competitor in China. So we have to recognize we're all in this together, that if any of us sinks financially or socially, we all sink because we have to pay up for it in some way. If we're not giving people good wages, we'll pay up with, for it in taxes that go to support welfare programs. Uh, we need better education. We need a better social safety net. We need more tolerance. We need a better sense of community. Yeah, and I'll tell you what Trump needs. Trump needs some better people around him, especially right now. Because my, my favorite part of last week was when the Trump campaign held a press conference with Rudy 
in front of a landscaping company that they mistook for the Four Seasons Hotel. It was called Four Seasons Landscape. Let me tell you, great advertising for Four Seasons Landscape. Ne- next door to a crematorium and a porn stop, too. <laughs> right, which is perfect. Stormy should have came there and danced. Talk to me about this moment and how it read to you as the networks called the election for Joe Biden. I mean, it's just perfect setting. You can't make this shit up. Well, and where was the president? So you've got Rudy in front of a landscaping company they mistook for a hotel and the president's golfing. You know, I tweeted as soon as it it, it went out that he's going to the golf course late in the morning. I, I tweeted something along the lines of, please, karma, allow him to be stuck in a sand trap when he finds out that Biden won the election. It, it, you know, it's actually the both of those moments. It shows Trump's disdain for the responsibility he has to look after other people. He he will always go to looking after himself and he needed to entertain himself as this defeated approach. So he goes golfing. Uh, it's like Nero fiddling while Rome burns. And then you've got these apparatchiks like Rudy. Uh, and I think Bernie Carrick was standing in the background there, as I recall. Uh, I could be wrong about that. In, in this ridiculous setting, making false claims about the election being rigged, even, even as they slide into oblivion. They still are up to their same old tricks and they're the Keystone cops and they're not very good at it. <laughs> well, let's do this for a second. Let's get conspiratorial for a moment. You and me conspiratorial? Yes. <laughs> uh, well, listen, I learned from the best, the king of conspiracy, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Mr. Trump himself. Yeah. So let's get conspiratorial for a moment. Trump is facing serious legal jeopardy from both the SDNY, the New York State AG, the New York District Attorney's Office. Do you think he agrees to walk away in exchange for some kind of immunity? And let's take it on both a federal level, meaning pre-pardoning himself and his sycophantic assholes, right? Specifically his kids. And then the state side. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things when you look at Trump and the arc of his life is he's always had these rings of fire protecting him from the consequences of his own mistakes. He's born into a wealthy family. So he doesn't have to pay for his uh, educational and then business mistakes. His father bails him out constantly. Uh, the rest of us growing up try to learn from our mistakes, be reflective, become better people. He never had to do that. Then he becomes a celebrity. He gets that ring of fire. He gets all the passes that society allows celebrities to have. Then he becomes president and he gets all, all the legal insulation that comes with the presidency. And now there might be a chance as he goes off into the world losing the protections of the presidency, that Biden and the federal um, law enforcement apparatus make a decision that there's more to be lost by prosecuting a former president than there is to be gained. That that has to be going through their mind. Does it alienate his voters? And, and these are questions you'd never ask. You certainly didn't benefit from the doubt in that way as an individual, Michael. And, and they tried to railroad you uh, when your book started to come close to publication. They harassed you during that period. Um, Most people don't get the passes that Donald Trump is probably, I think, at least it's going to be considered. Having said that, the New York State AG's investigation is a civil case. He may pay a big financial penalty. That will hurt because he's under a lot of debt pressure in his business right now. The Manhattan District Attorney's case has existential problems around it. It's a criminal case. They're going after Mazers, the accountant, the accountants. The children are at risk. Uh, and it's about financial fraud and tax fraud. And that's the one I think I, I, it's unclear to me what the SDNY is doing and the extent to which Barr might have just squelched 
any heartbeat out of that particular case. But Cy Vance's case is very real. He's a local prosecutor. The federales can't muscle him the way they could other prosecutors like uh, Robert Mueller, for example. And, and I think there's going to be a reckoning around that particular case. But he also could get off, which would be amazing. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that once Biden is in and we have a new attorney general and this asshole, Bill Barr, is shown the door and they finally put somebody in who actually wants to uphold the law, I think things are going to change a lot in terms of the SDNY. See, many people forget that there were about a dozen sealed indictments. And all of a sudden, they go away. And nobody knows why they went away. The New York SDNY turns around and they say that we've, we don't believe that we have a strong enough case to go after these 12 people. Of course, who was in it? Kushner and Don Jr. and Eric and Alan Weisberg and others. We don't have a strong enough case. But that's what they fucking convicted me on. So for me, it was okay to go after. You see, many people don't know, and that's what the, my second book is going to be all about. I'm going to take apart each and every aspect of the case, why I was given 48 hours from learning what my, my case was, what they were going to bring against me, threatening to indict my wife as a co-conspirator, right? And all, so I said, you know what, listen. And, and Matt Gates, Matt Gates threatening your children, right? Correct. And you know, by the way, people don't know this. I should actually post the tweet uh, that I was able to get a copy of. The person who actually wrote the apology to me and directed Matt to do it was Sean Hannity, who was supposed to be my friend at the time, too. He's another Fox asshole, you know. But I believe that, that the AG's case will turn criminal. I do. I believe that the DA's case definitively is criminal. And I do not believe that Joe Biden is going to pardon this is not going to be a Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford scenario, because basically he has done, meaning Donald Trump has done so much bad that if you allow him to get away with it, it does show that with money, you can be above the law. And one of the call signs by too many of the Democrats is no one is above the law. So what frightening outcomes do you foresee in the next eight weeks as Trump becomes a lame duck president, well, he's been a lame duck for really for four years, but he'll have zero interest in governing, but he's going to seek to settle a lot of scores and punish those who hurt him during the election, myself included. With a massive COVID death wave approaching and real national security repercussions, how grave of a danger will Trump prove to be to the country in these upcoming days? I think, Michael, he's a profound danger, as I said you in the top of the show, I worry that he's somebody who will burn down the house because things didn't go his way. That's that's been his, you know, his his track record. He still blames his casino debacles in, in Atlantic City on Atlantic City. He said it was a horrible place to do business. There's some truth. There was Atlantic City is a difficult place to do business, but Donald Trump didn't fail in Atlantic City because of Atlantic City. It's like the, it would be like the automakers saying they couldn't build better autos because Detroit's a tough city. He blames everyone but himself for his problems. And, and what he's looking at now is, I think at least, or very close to 250,000 Americans are now dead from COVID-19, millions more infected. Uh, he didn't corral 
the federal apparatus to deal with this, the biggest and most epic public health crisis of our generation, because he is lazy and selfish. There's no better explanation for that. And he didn't want it to reflect badly on himself. The economy is, is, is the most challenged it's been since the Great Depression. He can't accept those things about himself. So he will burn everything down around him to say, you don't like me, I'm going to blow it up. You don't, you don't like the, what happened. It wasn't my fault. The election was rigged. And, and I think we're going to be in a dangerous period between now and January 20th. And, and the, the way the, the forces that are going to protect us from that are law enforcement, the military, and, and I would hope the GOP at this very late date, if he really gets out of hand, that the Mitch McConnells and the Lindsey Grahams of the world finally develop spines. I'm not optimistic about that and really try to rein him in, but it's going to be a challenge. Yeah. And I don't believe anybody could ring him in because I, you know, there are many who believe the president, of course, myself included, and obviously yourself as well in the starkest of moral and legal terms. Cause I believe that what he did to the nation is both it's criminal. I, I truly believe that what he did to this nation was criminal and those that enabled him to effectuate what he did should also face the justice system far beyond just this ballot box. How did you feel on Saturday, Michael, when you heard he lost? Well, where, where, where were I you? I felt relieved. Where were you? I was home because I'm on home confinement. Right. Um, so I was home. Uh, I was relieved. You know, people ask me, were you jubilant? Did you do, you know, the happy dance and so on? Um, no, it wasn't that type of a feeling for me. It was a feeling of relief in two ways. One, because had he won, I believe that I would have been top on his hit list of people, as we were just talking a moment ago, that he, he cannot let anything go, even if he's the one that caused it. I would have been further down the list from you, but probably somewhere, somewhere. On yes, there. you'd be on the list, but yeah, you'd be at the lower end of yeah. the, um, <laughs> let's say, Amazon bestseller book list. Uh, <laughs> what, what, ends up, what ends up happening is he cannot forget. And having a show like this or being on television and not praising him, something he was so accustomed to me doing, is such a slap into his fat face that he just cannot let it go. My feeling is that those that enabled him should also be held responsible for their actions in allowing his criminal behavior. But the problem we have with that is that half the country still believes the bullshit and that, you know, that what Donald Trump did, they believe is justified. His behavior, they think, is appropriate and acceptable. And I just don't understand this. And as many times as, or as many people I will ask this question to, no one really has the full answer as to why. I'm still trying to figure it out for myself. And when I do, of course, I'm going to disclose it on this program. But I can't understand why we justify this man's behavior. He met your needs. You, you needed someone to make you feel larger than yourself. And again, I'm not saying that that's an egotistical thing. He made life feel larger and more interesting to you. And I think I would, I'm guessing, I, I, I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm just offering that as a food for thought. And I think that, I think for his base, he made them feel enfranchised. You know, someone once said to me uh, when I was, you know, earlier towards the end of last year, that the two most popular politicians that ever campaigned in Appalachia, in one of the most deeply white, poor 
parts of the country. The two most popular were Bobby Kennedy and Donald Trump. Both had very different politics, different parties. They were both very rich men, wealthy men, um, that normally you would think those folks wouldn't care a jot about. But those guys made time to come to the community, and they felt that they were they, they, that the, the residents there felt Bobby Kennedy and Donald Trump were authentic. And I think Bobby Kennedy was authentic, and he was a tough character, a ruthless character, but I think he was authentic. Donald Trump is an inauthentic con man who comes across to his supporters as authentic because they believe he speaks to their needs. And, and that's right. the challenge. He's an actor. Yeah, he's a performance artist and a carnival barker. You're right. He meets needs. It's certainly one of the things that attracted me you know, to him and made me stay when my own family begged me to leave more than a dozen times over that decade. And why didn't you listen to them? Why do you think you didn't listen to them? Because I'm stupid. No, you're not. There's no other there's no other answer. Yeah. I mean, I I was blinded by this cult leader and I can only, you know, claim temporary insanity. <laughs> I can't find a better, you know, defense for it. But as we close up onto the hour here. Yes, sir. I want to switch gears for a second and something completely off base here because I'd like to talk for a moment about Steve Bannon. Yeah. Right? And fashion. Because it's more a question of fashion and style. The fuck is with those shirts one over the other? I just don't, I don't get it. I mean, I think Steve Bannon's a profound crackpot. I think he gets away with spouting these historical truisms that are crackpot-esque. He's not as well read as, as he would appear to be. He, he bends little historical lessons he's learned to apply to the moment. He's very deft and fat fast on his feet in debates and public appearances. He's interesting to watch in that regard. You know, I think when, when anybody is continue, as continuously unkempt and as unhealthy looking as he is, it raises questions about what's going around inside for him. And is there some inner turmoil that his bravado, you know, masks? I would suspect there is, but I'm not a shrink. You know, you know, Trump was very attracted to Steve Bannon in the sense that Bannon had made some money in Hollywood. I think he was one of these co-producers or something on a, I think it was either Friends or something like that. Seinfeld. Uh, so he made money there, which Seinfeld, Seinfeld, thank you. And um, sorry, Friends, uh, with, Se <laughs> with Seinfeld. And, and, he, and he truly admired that, meaning Trump. And on top of that, Bannon was willing to take Donald Trump to the farthest depths of racism and hatred and so on. He and Steve Miller, I sat in the Oval Office, it was in January, at the end of January, right after they had rolled out the Muslim ban. And Trump boldly asked me, so what'd you think of, what'd you think of this rollout? And I said to him, what I think of it? You're fucking kidding me, right? And he said to me, no, I'm like, Mr. Trump, you can't ban a religion from the United States. I don't get it. This isn't what we spoke about. And ha by the way, what we were speaking about prior to his inauguration, um, when he became president-elect and prior, was about a infrastructure bill. And the interesting thing is, had he listened to me and done the infrastructure bill, hands down, he would have won this election and decisively. But it was Bannon and Steve Miller that were pushing and Jared and others were pushing for this Muslim ban because for some reason, again, keeping the people out of the country makes and the wall makes Donald Trump feel 
important. It makes him feel powerful, but he's not. He's really a fucking coward, right? And he's stupid, which makes it even worse because, and I hope he's listening to this. Had he listened to me, had he listened to everything that made sense, which is to do an infrastructure bill, which is why he went to the Arab Emirates and he came back with $750 billion that was supposed to then translate with Wall Street, knowing with Steve Mnuchin, who would explain it, that it could translate to $7.5 trillion of possible spending on infrastructure in the United States. Every American would have not just a job, but a high-paying job. The country would be economically stronger than any other country on the planet. And he would have sailed into the White House for a second term greater than anybody else in history. But stupid, he has to be a racist and he has to allow those racist tendencies that he has to to be front and center. And that's on Steve Miller and Steve Bannon and Don and Ivanka and Jared, you know, the whole group of them. You mentioned Miller and Bannon. They're two, you know, Miller and Bannon and Mitch McConnell and Bill Barr, those four people really recognized Trump for who he was. And he was a useful idiot for all four of those men. You know, he helped, he helped, he allowed Barr to help Trump craft an imperial presidency. McConnell got a massive tax cut in the conservative court. Bannon got to weaponize Breitbart obscenities at the federal level. And Stephen Miller got to have this grotesque xenophobic dream realized through Trump. And all of them were willing to tolerate everything else because they got those things out of him. Yeah, you're right. Well, Tim, let me thank you for your insight. Thank you, Michael. I enjoyed this. I get, every time I speak to, some, to someone different on this podcast, it blows me away because as much as I know, it's so interesting the way that you perceive it and how I perceived it and how I do today. It's, um, it's eye-openers for me. So I want to thank you again for your time and... Um, Thank you for coming over to Stay the strong. side, Michael. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you, Tim. All right. Take care. It's with a sense of deja vu that I'm watching my relief slip away and my worry return. Once again, Trump has proven his ability to jam the pipes with bullshit and take was once a foregone conclusion and create doubt and confusion. While I don't believe he will ultimately be victorious, that tiny voice in the back of my head is starting to whisper, run, Michael, run. If this were a horror movie, Trump is Freddy fucking Krueger, the unkillable bastard son of a thousand maniacs. Somehow, he just keeps coming back over and over again. This time, though, there is no way forward for Trump. We are witnessing the last desperate moments of a despot before he's evicted and imprisoned. It's more annoying than dangerous. The house guest that just won't leave. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch. And it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer, Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. <laughs>